Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On the 14th of June... News broke in Australia that many people had been waiting for for a number of years. That news was the death of this country's most notorious cult leader, Anne Hamilton Byrne. In this bonus episode, I'm bringing you an interview with investigative journalist Chris Johnson, who has been looking into the family for quite some time. He worked with director Rosie Jones on her recent documentary, The Cult of the Family, and they also co-wrote a book together about the group and its history. If you're interested in this subject, I'd highly recommend looking out that book. It's called The Family, The Shocking True Story of a Notorious Cult. You'll find a link in the show notes. Chris is a senior writer at The Age, and he spoke to me from Melbourne. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. If you haven't listened to episode one of the show, unless you're already familiar with the family, I suggest you go back and do so now before listening to this bonus episode. Before we get into it, a content warning. My discussion with Chris deals with subjects that some people may find disturbing, including the abuse of children, false imprisonment, and manipulative behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I've just got a few questions and I'm sure a lot will come up as we go over them, but yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. So I guess I just thought we'd start at the top, kind of how did you originally become involved in investigating the story of the family and Anne Hamilton Byrne? Uh, Well, I was working at The Age at the time and I'd spent quite a bit of time reporting for them on things like the, the Catholic Church, royal commissions, and I'd also just come off a period of looking at a or investigating a, um, a a sect called the Truth or the Friends and Workers, and I sort of 
Oh, and also the um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'd sort of I'd sort of done a few big hits on various mainstream uh, religions and sort of sects or quasi religions, and I'd always had the family, I guess, in the back of my mind. I mean, I'd, I'd been working at the age for coming up for 20 years at that point, and I knew that it was a big story for the newspaper. And in fact, the newspaper had sort of led the coverage of it back in the 80s and even a bit before that. And it literally just popped into my mind. I, I, I thought, what, whatever happened to to that is she still alive what what happened to the survivors um is the cult still active uh so I, I just started looking into it and pretty quickly discovered that she was still alive and and there was a, a sort of corporate structure behind her um that had a bunch of assets and the kind of lieutenants of that corporate structure were around and active in Melbourne and I met Sarah Moore, the one of the survivors, and just sort of went from there. So I guess it first it first started as a sort of a random thought, I wonder what happened to them, bearing in mind that the, the age had so much material on them and I sort of felt like the age kind of owned the story because of their history in it. And then when I sort of started making some calls and having a look into it, I discovered that there was actually a, a lot going on, even though by then, about 2013 or so, the cult was benign in terms of it wasn't stealing children anymore and drugging them and abusing them, but it was very wealthy and held a lot of property both in Victoria and overseas. And even though she was um, in her late 80s by then and had dementia, she was still through people close to her sort of pulling the strings on the finances. So I just sort of went from there. And then I met, and then uh, I met, uh, or I heard that Rosie Jones was making a documentary. So I started talking to her and we, I guess, built a relationship and helped each other out with stuff. And then she ended up co-writing the book with me. Yeah, well, those were my next two questions, how you became involved with the doco and what was the process of that kind of becoming a book or had you already planned to write that book in the meantime? No. Was that what the project started out as? Yeah, no. So, I, I, I mean, I all I had in mind was at that point was um, a series of newspaper articles, um, which I sort of started to do. And then, but then when I met Rosie, she, she had already been working on the story. I mean, she was an established documentary maker by then and had been working on the story of the family for a couple of years before I spoke to her and had, and had already sort of amassed a wealth of material, including a bunch of sort of primary source stuff. And she'd also developed a relationship with the, the former policeman, Lex Deman, who she introduced me to. So I was able to give her some information and she was able to give me a lot of what she had found out. And um, it just seemed natural to us, I guess, to embark on, on a book. I mean, she was never going to not do her documentary and she, she, she went ahead with it and she's sort of done a second part of that now, which was on the ABC recently. 
So it was a, a sort of true collaboration, really. And yeah, so you became heavily involved with the doco, she became heavily involved with the book. I wonder um, if you could tell me what the book has to offer readers who are interested in this story. Yeah, so we, I mean, we worked on them together, but we um, we sort of always saw the book as a, a sort of a different and separate project, if you like, to the documentary. If you write a sort of 90,000 word book, you, you can go into a lot more detail than a sort of 90 minute documentary. So we sort of decided to sort of take them in different directions. So the cinema doco really used, I guess, uh, Lex the policeman, Lex the man as the sort of narrative driver. So the film sort of starts in 1987 with the with the raid on the lake house at Lake Eildon where the children or where half the children were sort of imprisoned. It sort of starts there and uses Lex Lex's sort of journey as the sort of narrative driver, whereas the book is structured completely differently. So it's it's almost like telling two versions of the same story, but it's just, it, I guess they were sort of editorial decisions on where things should start and where, where things should end. Um, for example, in the book, I start with the time that I met Anne in her aged care facility in Melbourne and was taken in there by a cult member who we had befriended, I suppose, for want of a better word, or who we had persuaded to help us. So I sort of sort of start there and then and then sort of zip back in time to go through Anne's childhood, her highly dysfunctional childhood actually, and then and then through various stages of her uh, forming this cult and then I guess survivor stories or eyewitness stuff from them on what was happening to them and then there's the whole manhunt aspect of the book which I guess is the sort of the middle to final third I suppose where they, where she's being chased around the world by Lex from Victoria Police and by Interpol and by the FBI and we sort of finish with her facing death, really, and behind the scenes, cult members selling assets and moving money around, I suppose, in, in, in sort of readiness for her death. And sort of the the final part of the book is sort of looking at, I suppose, her her legacy and, and the complete, how would you say, the, 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 her set of beliefs and how absurd they were and the fact that she purported to be Jesus but in fact was just a an old frail woman who was sort of struck down with dementia and kind of like inert in an in an aged care facility with no supernatural powers whatsoever mm that's yeah when when i was researching the episode and i hadn't been able to watch the documentary at the time because i was researching it before the documentary came out that was sort of the structure that that really struck me as well it was like this old lady in a in a aged care facility with dementia you know clearly with with no powers and then you think about the the damage that this woman did it's just mind-boggling yeah so there's a sort of disconnect between the enormous power that she managed to wield during well through the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, things started to fall away after the lake house was raided. But yeah, there's a serious disconnect between 
the amazing power and wealth that she had and then the reality of it, which which was, I guess, the fact that she was, you know, born into a dysfunctional family in Sale in Gippsland and then was facing death in a basically alone in a in a nursing home in Wonturner in Melbourne. It just it just seemed a very stark sort of disconnect. And one of the one of the strangest sort of symbolic things that we saw, I suppose, was when we did meet her in the in the aged care home, she had a, a doll, like a, a baby doll, like a plastic doll that she was uh, held really close to her a lot of the time. And considering this was a woman who engineered the stealing of babies and the abuse of children, it was very strange to see that. And I guess that brings brings us to really now that the the death has happened what what does the death of Anne Hamilton Byrne mean to you and what is your impression of what it would mean to her many victims oh well i mean a lot of people were waiting for her to die for a long time i mean she was i think i think she was was she 98 when she died a couple of weeks ago and I mean, this is a woman who has had chronic dementia for 10 years, maybe a little more. She, just as the book came out, she was put into palliative care. So that's three years ago. About a year ago, she fell over and fractured her pelvis. So it was like, when is this person going to die? And we, we, we kind of joked amongst ourselves that maybe she was right and maybe she was Jesus and maybe she did have the secret to eternal life and maybe we were wrong and she was right all along but she just sort of wouldn't die and I guess when you're waiting for something like that to happen you you sort of stop waiting after a while because it's sort of it seems like it's just never going to happen you just sort of get on with your life and anyway so a couple of weeks ago the I was having lunch with a friend and um, my phone just started going berserk and she died. And uh, what does it mean? I mean, in terms of the survivors, so the children who she stole and imprisoned and drugged, who are now mostly in their 40s, mostly in Melbourne, but some in other places in Australia, such as Sydney, um, some are overseas. They they had genuinely mixed feelings, all of them, because even though she was a, a sort of an evil figure in their lives, she was also a mother figure to them. And for a long time, these people thought that she was their mother. And it wasn't until they were released from her clutches and put into the care of the state in 1987, they found out that's the first time they found out that, in fact, she wasn't. And that was a massive realisation for them. So, so when, she, when she died, there, there were genuinely conflicted and mixed feelings. I mean, Lex, the policeman, was really happy that she was dead and was quoted in the media as, you know, saying she was the most evil person he'd ever encountered and that, and that um, it was a great day because she, she was dead and that, you know, the pain lingers on for the survivors, but, you know, she's gone sort of thing. The Wicked Witch is dead. And even now, two or three weeks on, a lot of the crew are still pretty jittery about what it means and what happens next. 
So there are a few things happening. One is that there's a there's a class action that's been filed in the in the Supreme Court of Victoria by Leanne Crease, uh, one of the survivors. I think there's uh, six or seven of her cult brothers and sisters or other survivors who are parties to that class action. They're seeking compensation for the treatment that they suffered. So that, I mean, that court case has been delayed a little because of her death. The lawyers have to sort of redraft stuff, but that's due to start this year sometime. So that'll be that'll be very interesting. And that will, uh, lawyers for the survivors will present in court evidence of assets being moved around, um, money being moved. There's a registered charity that sort of directs traffic behind the scenes on behalf of the cult. So I I expect quite a few sort of revelations from, from that court case or that's, that, that series of court trials to come out probably later this year. What the end result is, obviously, I don't know, but the, that, that's, that's kind of like a, another chapter that's yet to play out. There is a bit of movement behind the scenes. Some rusted-on cult members who are very old are still pulling strings. There's, there's three cult men living in Anne's mansion in the Dandenongs in Olinda. Um, their temple still stands in Fernie Creek, which is the next suburb up there. Yeah, there's stuff going on. They've certainly sold properties. They had a big property in the Catskills near New York, which they've recently sold. Yeah, there's quite a bit going on behind the scenes. I wonder if you have any impression of what her death would mean to those who do still claim to believe in her? Well, I've spoken to, I've spoken to one guy, Michael. So Michael is in the, in the documentary and also in the book. And Michael is a fellow who is the nephew of a former Governor-General of Australia, Sir Zelman Cowan. Michael Stevenson-Helmer is his name, and he's that guy's nephew. He's, a, he's, a prominent, he's from a very prominent and wealthy Melbourne family. And he's a he's a rusted on devotee of Anne's even in death. He first came across her in the sixties through Buddhism and the Maharishi, a sort of sort of during the sort of Beatlemania sort of era. Um, and he, I haven't been able to speak to him at length, um, but I have had some contact with him since she died and he's i suppose i suppose the attitude is that her power remains that her that her sort of lessons that she taught them remain and that she she and you know his line would be that she died as she lived which is you know gloriously now there's no succession plan for the cult as far as i know i i think it'll just peter out i mean they aren't really doing they haven't really been doing anything notable for some years now, except hiding money. Yeah, I mean, how does that fit in with the belief system, the moving around of loads of money? Well, it doesn't fit in with the belief system at all, but they were, they, they were always, I mean, she was incredibly greedy and she loved wealth. She loved the trappings of wealth. She 
you know, was having facelifts and cosmetic surgery since the 60s. She liked to get around in Rolls-Royce cars and Daimlers and Bentleys. She had homes all over the world. She bought her clothes in Europe. She claimed to be descended from French royalty. She manipulated cult members into handing over to her their estates, their property. She was incredibly greedy and and driven by money but that was never a tenet of the of the sort of spiritualism that she uh, preached um, that was all about you know karma and I guess silence and betrayal don't you know don't say anything don't betray me these are my beliefs um, you're you're part of the chosen ones there was never any talk of money but she was extremely 100% greedy and and even though her estate has has dwindled significantly due to her aged care costs, she still leaves behind a lot of money. And they would probably feel that they are the rightful recipients of that money just by virtue of having followed her to the end? Yeah, absolutely. They wouldn't feel that they are sort of spiritually entitled to it. They would feel just pure greed about what they're entitled to, I would suggest, and there is a fair bit still left. So we'll see what happens there. So obviously the, the, the sort of battle now is between that way of thinking and the, and the opposite way of thinking, which is that the survivors or the survivors who are willing to be party to the class action should be compensated for what they've been through. Some of her um, victims were compensated in early 2000s, I think. I think three of them took civil actions and got money paid to them out in out-of-court settlements. But none of those are, are, are party to this class action now. It's a new set of people. So there's a really strong sense that they should be compensated, that no money should go into cult hands now, and that any money that can be found should be given to these people who are seeking it through the Supreme Court, which I think is, you know, the right way to go, obviously. Yeah, yeah, obviously, I completely agree. I mean, it would be a nice ending in a way. I, if that happens, I don't think there would be any more to play out in terms of the story of this cult. Certainly privately with a lot of the survivors, there's still a lot to play out because they're in various states of repair. I mean, some are doing really well, some are doing not so well. So privately in their lives, there's a lot to play out in terms of them, you know, regaining their identity and having meaningful lives and happy, safe lives. But I guess in the public realm, if the people who are seeking compensation are compensated, then that would be quite a lovely full stop on the sort of public side of the story. Mm. And is it those who are seeking the compensation now, is it that it took them just this long to feel ready to do that and not do that in the past when others were seeking that compensation? I think there's a, there's a few reasons for that. I think, you know, knowing some of the parties to the Supreme Court claim, they're, they're sort of, I guess, older and wiser now. As I say, they're, they're in their 40s. They've, um, in some instances, got their own families. They've got, you know, like Leanne has pretty much adult children now. I think she would probably say that the process of being involved in a documentary and a book was difficult but positive and potentially sort of opened their eyes to 
what was possible in the future. But in, in a practical sense, what happened was some, some lawyers came and saw the film and read the book and started talking to various people involved in in it and, and things sort of sprung from there. So it was, I think it was the sense of injustice that these people had 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 suffered was sort of brought to light by by what we did and one thing led to another and the lawyers are now on the case so i think it's a few things you know passage of time and sort of highlighting the issues and perhaps a sort of new sense of confidence too that you know she's old and dying we're doing okay let's have a crack let's try and make this right because don't forget she was never she was convicted but only on very minor charges she never went to prison and the fines that they caught were really minor so even though she was arrested charged and eventually convicted there was still a sense that justice hadn't been done oh a hundred percent it was i guess the most shocking part was just how little justice was seen for for what these people went through yeah i mean so if you look at it on paper she could have she and her husband Bill and some of their enablers could potentially have been charged with all sorts of things from what false imprisonment just off the top of my head false imprisonment administering drugs LSD to children assault kidnapping all sorts of things but that never happened for good reason I must say which I'm happy to explain why that didn't happen but I mean it, it just never happened in the first place. So there, there was a sense that, or there still is a sense that, you know, there's, there's work to be done in terms of making things right. And what was that? I mean, what I read was that was about not wanting to put the children through any further trauma by having them testify in those cases. Is that what it was? Yeah, that was one of the reasons. I guess that was the main reason. There were some legal complications at play as well. One was that um, when she was arrested, she was in America and it was under Victorian law that she was being charged. So there were some legal complications in terms of getting her back to Australia to face the charges. It was seen at the time, this was when 1993, 94, it was seen at the time that any charges that they could make stick and that she would admit to would be the best ones to lay, then she would have to get on the Qantas plane and come home. Um, But there was also at the same time a very strong sense from the DPP, the prosecutors, the Crown prosecutors in Victoria and the police and the welfare agencies that to have the uh, survivors who were a lot younger then, I mean, they were, this was only six years after the raid or something, so... They were only in their early 20s then. There was a sense that to have them cross-examined on more serious charges, which she would have pleaded not guilty to instead of guilty, would be re-traumatising for them. And so a decision was made uh, at the time, which some do regret now, but some will, will stand behind. The decision was made to, rather than test serious charges and have them possibly fall over under the extradition laws and have the have the kids re-traumatized it was a better better call to lay minor charges on her which were to do with document fraud and get her back to australia and see what happens 
which is what they did. And they were found guilty, her and Bill, her third husband, were found guilty of the charges that were laid, but they were only very minor charges to do with fake signatures on, on government documents. It just does seem incredible what they managed to get away with in the end. I will be watching, hopefully, for good results from that class action for sure. And I guess what a, a great result from your work and Rosie's work that they have, have legal representation as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, I w look, we wouldn't want to take credit for that, but it was just serendipity, I guess, that a particular lawyer came to a film screening and a book signing and met us and was really moved by the story and had read the book and was able to get her law firm over the line to do some initial pro bono work around it. And, and that's progressed now to the stage of a Supreme Court class action. So that, that was due to go ahead. It would have been sort of happening around about now, but then she died. So they had to redraft the terms of the case. So, yeah, it's all going ahead. I'm, I love a bit of courtroom drama as well. So I'll be, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be quite keen to uh, get down to the Supreme Court and see what happens when it, when it kicks off. I really hope they manage to see some sort of compensation at the end of it. And I, I wondered, those who do still claim to believe in Anne and, and are trying to keep the estate for themselves, do they not see what happened to these children as worthy of that compensation without it having to go through this sort of court case? Most of the rusted on members would say, and in fact Michael told us this in the documentary and the book, that they're, no, they're not entitled to anything, that, they're, that they have a victim mentality and that Michael would say that while some things happened to the children at the lake house, it was within the bounds of reasonable disciplinary behaviour and that they're wrong, they're victims, and they're not entitled to anything. That's my reading of it. Mm. It's amazing the leaps and bounds that your mind must have to do to have once believed that this was like the future of the human race was these children and now that clearly didn't pan out, but there's got to be another reason to still believe in, in this woman. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, as far as I know, yoga is still important to them and, you know, this sort of this sort of um, mixture of sort of Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and cosmic spirituality, they still kind of adhere to that as far as I know. But really, it's it's changed into a sort of a, a business model now where they're just trying to feather their own nests rather than sort of do anything grandly spiritual. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, everyone had to suspend belief from the moment they met this woman. I mean, the, the, the first really important person that she met in terms of setting up this cult was a professor of physics from the University of Melbourne. And this was in the very early 60s, like maybe 60, 61. And he was Dr. Rainer Johnson, and he was English. And Melbourne Uni poached him from Leeds University in the post-war period. And he came over to Melbourne Uni as a sort of a marquee signing. He was an eminent physicist and had written heaps of books on physics. And in fact, had worked with Ernest Rutherford splitting the atom. 
back in the day. So he was an eminent physicist, but he was getting a bit he was getting older. He was approaching retirement, I guess you'd say. And so Melbourne Uni poached him to uh, head up one of their colleges and to be, you know, one of their rock star academics. And he came over to Melbourne and did that. And then as he got older, he was still holding the job, but he had sort of moved from pure physics into into metaphysics. So he was a spiritual man. He was looking for a master with a capital M. He was into Eastern religions. He was into iridology and cosmology. And she courted him, I guess you'd say, and recruited him and gave him acid. (laughs) And he became her key enabler and recruiter early on. So this is one of the smartest minds on the planet. She knew that if he, if she was able to get him on side, he would give her a veneer of respectability because he was in, in sort of elite society in Melbourne at the time. He was hanging out with newspaper editors and with a bunch of people who would go on to form what we now know as the Liberal Party. Um, he was high society guy, very prominent but also a very strange man, as we came to know. And she she dazzled him really easily and really quickly through through sort of, I guess you'd almost call it catfishing now. She pretended to know a bunch of stuff about him that she'd found out from other people um, and sort of dazzled him with her good looks and with her apparent knowledge of his life and her drugs. And yeah, so he, he suspended belief within an instant. He and within within a few months of meeting her, he was up at her place in the in the Dandenong Ranges doing acid and mushrooms. And because we got hold of his diaries, you see, so we know all this. We have the primary source, and he and he wrote about that first time that he went to her house and took drugs and. And he was literally kneeling at her feet and he wrote that he'd met his master. He thought she was Jesus because she told him she was Jesus. He thought she was sort of magic, but actually she'd just found out stuff about him from other people and then sort of relayed that to him. And he thought that she knew everything about him through some sort of spiritual magic, but actually she'd just got other people to tell her. And so he suspended belief straight away. And then, because he was then on the case and he was doing lectures around Melbourne on spirituality and cosmology and all this sort of stuff, he was able to recruit people who were interested in what he was saying to go see her for the sort of next level. And so they suspended belief straight away as well. And that just that went on for, for, for decades. But it all started to crumble. I mean, you know... Various key people who were close to her betrayed her in the late 80s because they saw they eventually saw through it and they saw their empty bank balance and they saw that they were complicit or helping her enable criminal acts and they, they rolled over and told the cops everything. Two people in particular, her lawyer and one of her... Uh, so-called aunties, who were the there were three or four women, who she gave the job of looking after the kids, mm-hmm. um, and now they didn't look after them. They 
were cruel to them and abused them, but they were victims as well. They, they were under her spell and they were beholden to her and they were made to do things by her and they were sort of emotionally, financially, spiritually beholden to her and they were trapped just like the kids were. So anyway, one of them rolled over and her lawyer rolled over and, and that was sort of the beginning of the end in a way. But yeah, everyone, everyone had to suspend belief because obviously it wasn't true. She's not Jesus. She didn't have any answers. She was a cruel, greedy narcissist. But they didn't see that at first. All they saw was what she was purporting to be the, the positive side. So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of suspended belief and a lot of, I think, hope. Like people people look for something, don't they? And they want answers and they want easy answers and they want, if someone comes along and, and purports to know everything about you and bombs you with love and then sort of withdraws it, you're, you're sort of emotionally tied to them anyway and that's what she exploited. A hundred percent. It's the same kind of method that happens in all of these groups. And I have so much sympathy for people who get caught up in it because I think it's completely understandable that you meet someone who you think is amazing and you, and you follow them. I think we all do that day to day. And it's just that they have somehow managed to follow the the wrong person who has the wrong motives. Yeah, she was tech. She was, she was, she was textbook. <laughs> Textbook cult leader, except for one thing, she was a she. Yeah. And there haven't been very many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Just speaking about the aunties briefly, I had this question just in a, a group related to the podcast, which was about people who get caught up in these groups. They are under a coercive control situation, but then they do also perpetrate crimes themselves. So it's an interesting kind of ethical question, I suppose. Yeah, it is. I mean, but I, I mean, look, there were, there were sort of three main aunties. So these were early adopters of Anne's ways. They were women who Anne persuaded to leave their families and marry other people or, or, or couple up with other people. They were women that she persuaded to become nurses at Melbourne hospitals so that they could work shifts and earn money and bring the money back to the cult. And then when they weren't working on their week off or whatever, they could look after the kids at the lake house. But I really see them as victims as well. And I mean, there was some incredibly cruel behavior meted out by all of them, you know, hitting the kids and starving the kids and, and all this sort of thing. But I see them as victims as well, even though they were coerced into criminal acts I think they're victims just as much as the as the other survivors are. I think I can see that as well. But I guess, you know, does that make someone not accountable for criminal behaviour in those situations? Or would you just see it as like a, maybe like a, a mitigating factor or? It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, some of the some of the earlier aunties, when there were a bigger number of them, did face some charges. But the main ones never did. And I'm thinking of three women in particular, and if you look at their personal histories and the way they were caught up in this cult and what their families and their extended families say about them as people, I mean, it just it just sort of adds to my sort of idea that they were equally under her spell. I, I mentioned that she was a classic cult leader, and I think I think one thing that a good cult le- a good cult leader. I don't know if good is the right word, but an effective cult leader does is outsource. So 
you want to remain at arm's length from the authorities. Um, you don't want to get your hands dirty. Um, so you, you hire or convince people around you to do the bad stuff for you. And Anne Hamilton Byrne was an absolute genius at this. I mean, she, from her earliest incarnations, she started gathering people around her who could do exactly what she wanted. So she had architects, doctors, nurses, social workers, psychiatrists, lawyers. She had all these people who could do stuff. So the lawyers could obviously do the legal documents, real estate agents could do the property stuff, you know, the psychiatrists could help her with the LSD stuff because LSD was a massive part of this cult. Like she exploited the power of LSD mercilessly and she was sort of blessed by good timing in that in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s until 75, it was legal in Victoria and in other states of Australia too. But in Victoria, it was legal for therapeutic purposes, right? So if you're a psychiatrist and you could mount a case that you wanted to use this quite new experimental drug in therapy for people with mental illness, you could if, if you were approved to hold a licence. Now, the guy in Victoria who was employed by the government to approve or disapprove licences was Colt. So he was, his name was um, Whitaker. He, he was Victoria's most prominent psychiatrist, very, very storied, and he was responsible for giving out licences for psychs to get liquid LSD straight from the Hoffman lab in Basel in Switzerland. And, yeah, he was on the inside. So he gave licences to his cult psychiatrist mates and uh, away they went. It is such a good example of uh, how none of us is, you know, impervious to this sort of manipulation because when you think about this amazing mind that was Raynor Johnson and a physicist and then these psychiatrists who would have, like, deep understandings of how the mind works and yet they still manage to be manipulated like this, it's, it's quite stunning. Yeah, well, psychiatry was crucial to this cult. There are a few things that were. Yoga was one, psychiatry was the other. And this was a cult who who had their own psychiatric hospital in Melbourne. Mm. It was in Kew, which is kind of like the, it's a, it's a wealthy eastern suburb. And there was this beautiful Victorian uh, mansion that by the, by the mid to late 60s and right through the 70s was a private um, psychiatric hospital called New Haven. And um, at one point in the in the late 60s, a cult member bought it and there were a lot of cult doctors, nurses and psychs working there. The LSD was flooding into it because there were three psychs working out of there who had the licences thanks to their mate. And this was a place where, bear in mind, it, it's, you know, 60s, moving it towards the 70s. So it was a fair while ago and mental illness was, was um, I mean, it's still misunderstood, but it was grossly misunderstood then, as were the treatments, I should say. So ECT, the, the electroconvulsive therapy, um, shock treatment, all these experimental methods were being used on these patients and LSD was, was one of them legally, but, you know, obviously they exploited it. And it was sort of like a recruiting ground. So, you know, if I went to a doctor and had 
was diagnosed with depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or anything like that, I, I might end up in a place like this back then. But you were sort of w walking into a sort of drug-fueled cult recruiting ground. Very strange. Mm. Oh, it's, yeah, it kind of gives you the creeps <laughs> thinking about it. Gives you the willies. Gives you the willies, yes. My skin's crawling. And actually, I'll tell you one other thing about that hospital, because it's kind of like it's really haunted as far as I can see. It's not there now. The building's there, but it's I think it's apartments now. So if you were in the cult and you were naughty, so if you betrayed Anne in some way or you or she wasn't pleased with you or she you wouldn't give her money or you wouldn't leave your husband or... And, in fact, when she met her third husband, he was already married and she would put people in New Haven to sort of get them away and to sort of sedate them and drug them, to sort of imprison them in there. And she did that with, with Bill's wife when he, she met him because he had money and she wanted his money and his sort of patronage. But he had, unfortunately he had a wife, so she kind of put her on the outer and then put her on the outer so much that she was in this hospital, kind of imprisoned there. Oh, it's horrendous. What happened to her? She died not long after, but not in there. Yeah, so Bill Bill left her and shacked up with Anne and became her sort of key enabler in the final stage of her cult activities. And yeah, the wife just sort of faded away and he had he had children as well and yeah it was all very messy it was very strange but she's buried next to him now we, we found where they were buried which is in just out of melbourne in a little country cemetery up near the dandenongs and um, they're buried next to each other oh gosh yeah wonder how she'd feel about that <laughs> i don't know but he was a he was he was a puppet too she she was like a puppet master she played she played it so effectively and she you know she convinced him of her worldview and he was completely in her under her spell was there anything else you wanted to say about the book or, or anything else i mean this is a really dark episode in australian history i mean it's we had evidence of and, it, and it's documented in the in the book that you know, the police were sort of circling this cult for a long time but were never able to do anything about it for various reasons. And we have evidence that the state government at the time, which was liberal, this was 70s, were briefed and told about what was happening, that there was, you know, a group of people spread between Lake Eildon, which is two hours out of Melbourne, and the Dandenongs, which had children which were potentially not theirs, that there were drugs coming in, that there were allegations of assault. This group sort of existed, sort of hiding in plain sight, I guess, and they were able to get away with what they were doing for, for a long time. And, 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 you know, we know that the police were looking at them since 1971, but nothing happened until 1987. And only then because Lex Man, who was actually an arson squad copper, a detective, stumbled across the case because of a suspicious fire up in the Dandenongs and found out about some stuff that was happening from the local police and took it on. It's incredible, really. I mean, he was he was in the arson squad, but his bosses sort of let him investigate this other case on the side, and he got so much evidence that he was able to form a task force in the end. But, I mean, there was so much police inaction or 
I suppose, ignorance of what was happening or a sort of perception that it wasn't a criminal it wasn't a criminal story, it was a sort of a social work story or a sort of series of soft crimes or something and just just nothing happened for so long, you know. And I think that that would never happen now because there's a lot of checks and balances now, but it was such a dark episode and so many people in so many positions of power knew what was happening or were told what was happening and still nothing happened. It just shows that these things can happen and it wouldn't happen to this extent in terms of kids being taken from hospitals, but as you and I both know, cults are everywhere and people want to believe in something and they want to have some sense of hope so they cling on to other people who offer it, whether or not it's true. Do you think that there are things in the law that could change to curtail some of the damage that groups like this are causing in society? Yeah, well, I do, actually. The main thing that needs to happen is that the the charities regulator needs to get some balls and to look closely at registered charities, which are tax-free and which are basically hiding cult, sect or quasi-religious organisations. I mean, the family is a prime example. There's a registered charity called Life for All Creatures, which holds all her money and which is entirely peopled in terms of the directors by, by cult members. And I'm talking now today. And the ACNC, the Australian Charities Something Something, it's the government regulatory body, they've been told numerous times by myself, by lawyers, by police, by anyone that could get a hold of them, that this was a bogus charity and they haven't done anything about it. And I could tell you, you know, half a dozen off the top of my head registered charities who don't pay tax and who are fronts for dangerous quasi-religious groups. I mean, that that's just strip their tax exemption and take them off the charities register. Then they don't have a sort of financial and administrative platform to do what they do. It's it's that simple. That would be a good start as far as I'm concerned. It's also frustrating. I think it's um, something f- for me in kind of just doing this, this independent podcast has been about it seems like the only thing that you can do is try to educate people and tell the stories of what people have been through to try and make sure that more people know the red flags to look out for because it seems like legally and politically there's there's little 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 going on i mean i think this stuff is just going to going to keep rolling on people are not going to stop looking for uh hope for saviors for the answer for some alternative way of living that that gives them some sort of glimmer of salvation or whatever, I think that's going to keep going. I think fringe cults and sects are probably more popular than ever before. Is that your sense? Well, I feel like my eyes have been completely opened to it through doing the show, so I don't know if my feeling of it being just bigger than ever before is based on my own kind of realisation of how many of these groups are out there, but definitely, gosh, there are a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I did, I've done some work around um, South Korean cults, which is super interesting because South Korea is basically the cult capital of the world right now. And this is a, this is a very, very Christian country. Historically, I mean, there are indigenous 
sort of ancient religions there, but Christianity is the is is king there. It, it, you know, most people are Christians, and there are a lot of fringe churches there, and. Not surprisingly, I mean, the Moonies back in the day were South Korean and they've had a, a bunch of high-profile sort of dangerous cults outed with leaders even imprisoned in South Korea. But it's a very active cult country and a lot of them are moving into Australia, Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide and Brisbane in particular, and I've done a bit of work around that and it's booming, mate. It's absolutely booming. There are you know, lots of people involved in this and, the, you know, some of them are based on Christian sort of weird Old Testament Christian stuff. Some of it, some of it is based on the sort of charismatic leader who is interested in having sex with as many young devotees as possible. Some are, some are apocalyptic, you know, doomsday cults. It's just, it's absolutely booming in that country and it's because of I guess, um, the movement of international students now from Asia to Australia, it's the, a lot of these groups have a strong foothold in Sydney and Melbourne particularly, and families are being divided and torn apart. There are kids who are, are not in contact with their families anymore because of the, the power exerted over them by these South Korean cults. But this is a country that is also, you know, it sits next to North Korea. So it sits in this sort of apocalyptic, bizarro shadow of North Korea. So it's kind of no surprise that people are looking for salvation. You know what I mean? Based on this long history of Christianity and this sort of Jesus idea, but also living in the shadow for generations now of, of North Korea, I mean, it's, it doesn't surprise me that people are scared and are feeling hopeless and are looking for something more. And so they fall for the next Messiah, you know, and there's tons of them over there. Gosh, it makes you worry with all the kind of climate change stuff going on that that's just going to become more and more people's outlook as this uh, hopelessness and trying to find another path to hope. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. That's kind of what I think. So... I don't know what you can do about it, but um, if you don't register them as charities and make them pay tax, that would help, I would have thought. <laughs> it's a start. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you go. I, I've definitely taken up a bunch of your time and I really appreciate it. And this has been such an interesting conversation. So thank you so much. No worries, Sarah. Thank you. And um, keep up the good work. And you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Cheers, Chris. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks, mate. See you. Before I leave you, if you're not on the Let's Talk About Sects social media channels or subscribed to our e-newsletter, you might not have heard that we took out the Australian Podcast Award in May for the Independent True Crime category. It was a huge honour and I had a great time meeting with many other amazing podcasters on the night. 
I'm currently hard at work on season three of the show, which is due to launch in mid-September. If you can't wait until then, I have a half-hour episode coming out shortly on ABC Radio National's Earshot podcast, so be sure to subscribe to that one if you miss my voice. If you'd like to support the making of this podcast, I'd very much appreciate your support in any of the following ways. You can tell a friend about the podcast and send them a link. You can like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or sign up to the e-newsletter and buy merch via the website. You can give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can donate even just a dollar a month to help me cover my expenses. Or you can also give a one-off donation via PayPal of any amount you like. All of those options can be found at www.ltaspod.com. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. A big thanks to Chris Johnston for sharing his time and knowledge with me for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me soon for season three of the show. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.